Hello and welcome to Sometimes Dead is Better. And it's me, Kristen. And me, Chris. And this is our part two episode about Jaws. It sure is. We hope you enjoyed the last episode. Yes, and I hope you've been in suspense as I've been about which true story Kristen is going to pick for our episode. (laughs) I picked two. Because it can't be a true crime that she, I mean. Well, there is actually a little bit of a true crime mixed in there. This is probably my favorite part two that we've done so far i think oh okay well i found it fascinating good i mean don't oversell it (laughs) there are some things that we forgot to talk about i think so we didn't talk about the fact that jaws was nominated for best picture and that steven spielberg got snubbed for best director well i'm not sure i knew that (laughs) oh okay i guess i if i I guess i knew that maybe he wasn't nominated for best director if i ever thought about it but i didn't know that jaws was like a if i thought maybe that was like sort of snubbed or sniffed at by the critics. Well, Steven Spielberg thought for sure that he was going to get a nomination. He thought that they were going to sweep the Oscars. And so then whenever they were waiting to hear, he didn't hear his name. It was very devastating. Oh, you know what I did? Yeah, I remember this from that uh, Spielberg documentary. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. They actually have they have footage of yeah, it, so right? I guess I did know that. I just forgot it. And so Jaws was nominated, but it lost to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, oh, okay. which isn't a bad movie to lose to. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It wasn't like losing to Gladiator in 2000 or something. It's not like Metallica losing to Jethro Tull. (laughs) That famous Grammy snub for Best Metal Album. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite one. Uh, But it did win a couple Oscars for, like, technical ones. Best Shark. Yeah. (laughs) Best Shark. Best Bruce. (laughs) Well, I'll preface all this by saying I binged a podcast, which I've talked about the other series multiple times, I know that you haven't listened to them yet, and that's okay, but there's Inside Psycho, Inside the Exorcist, Inside Star Wars, and Inside Jaws. Oh, cool. And they're all great. These are all hosted by Mark Ramsey. He does reenactments of, like, conversations and events with just himself. And it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's really, really good, like, the way he does it. He reenacts, like, phone calls and things that happen these and actually i was thinking like i didn't realize but this podcast is a little bit like ours because they tie in the movie and the movie making with what it's inspired so the jaws one goes back to the 1916 jaws attacks shark attacks and then it will cut to steven spielberg you know as a kid and then it cuts back to this it cuts back to the indianapolis and then in the psycho episode he talks about ed gein and then he'll go back to early Hitchcock and so it's, it's they're really really good and each episode's only like 25 35 minutes and there's usually seven parts um so we talked about Jaws 2 or I did <laughs> yes and and apparently Steven Spielberg did want to do a Jaws 2 if it could be about the USS Indianapolis really? but they said no for some reason because like we had said, this was the biggest grossing movie up to that point. The first summer blockbuster. So I'm not sure why he didn't get his blank check. <laughs> what was his next movie? I guess it was a Close Encounters. Yeah. Well, that, that turned yeah. out okay, too. Yes, that's a good one. 
And as you were saying too about him having this like sanitized reputation, if you remember at the end of Close Encounters, spoiler, Richard Dreyfuss leaves his family. Yeah, that movie, I, I, they re-released that in the theaters um, you know, a couple years ago, certainly before the pandemic. <laughs> And uh, maybe it was his 40th anniversary or something. Uh, and I went mm-hmm. and saw it because I'm a huge nerd. And I, that was the first time I've probably seen it as, you know, someone in my 30s or whatever I was at that time. And maybe even as an adult. And yeah, that whole movie is about this fractured family and this very selfish <laughs> husband father that's basically abandoning his family for his own sort of selfish, for his own ends. Yeah. And then when you think about how Spielberg famously is sort of this childhood of the worst and that every single one of his movies is either about, okay, not all of them, but mostly about divorce or, uh, you know, these parental issues. I mean, I don't know about War Horse or whatever, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, the the boy and the horse get divorced, so... <laughs> right. Well, E.T., you know, obviously, with the single yeah, mother. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I know he's, you know, War of the Worlds. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, another fun fact that we didn't talk about was that J.J. Abrams and Matt Reeves, who Matt Reeves directed the planet of the apes movies the new ones like they were friends as teenagers and when they were teenagers they edited and restored spielberg's eight millimeter films i mean like as you a job that? yeah yeah I, I i maybe heard something about that i thought that was so cool and then when jj abrams was only 22 is when he first met steven spielberg because they were going to be talking about doing a sequel to who framed roger rabbit hmm. that never happened no i rewatched that movie recently because of the, the blank check episode yeah, they're they're, they're oh, doing really? Zemeckis now. That movie is nuts. I mean, I used to love it. It's so crazy. I used to love it too. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember my parents bought it for me before I even saw it. They just knew I'd love it, and I did. But watching it as an adult, it's like, man, how'd they get away with that? It's crazy. <laughs> right. And that's one that uh, Casey, my brother, had brought up as being one of the first things that really scared him. Even with the dip, oh, it's uh, still it's the, the, that cartoon scream. That's it's so scary. very traumatizing. And there's a lot of sex jokes and. Um, well, I mean, look at Jessica Rabbit. I mean, God. There's a lot going on. There's, you know, you got a, a <laughs> rabbit in your pants. You're just happy to see me. I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> oh, no. And Bob Hoskins is the lead. I mean. <laughs> right. <laughs> what? So odd. <laughs> anyway, I love that movie. Well, if we ever did like a series of movies that scarred people as kids. That'd be fun. We could. That yeah. would be fun. Yeah. So we could do like that. Goonies. Yes. The dog. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, wow, yeah. Nothing traumatized about that one. <laughs> okay, so before we get started on my two big stories, I have one tiny true crime. Okay. That's very, very cool. So during the summer of 1974, Steven Spielberg was filming Jaws, but also in July of 1974 in Providence, Massachusetts, a dead body was found on the shore. This was the body of a woman. Her, both of her hands had been cut off. She was displayed on a green beach towel, like to make it look like she was just laying out in the sun. But instead of her hands being there, someone had arranged pine straw. Her head was almost cut off. She'd been bludgeoned to death, but you could still see like her auburn colored ponytail. And what's, even stranger about this is that they could not identify her. They ran even up until modern day because they ran DNA. They ran her dental records and they couldn't identify her. No one was missing. She had tons of work done in her teeth. So you think that she would have had dental records somewhere. 
there was some speculation that maybe she was a victim of Whitey Bulger and she'd been left there. But what's really crazy about this, and that's like you're probably wondering, well, how's this tie? I was getting was there. it the Land Shark <laughs> from SNL? No. So cut to 2015, and the author Joe Hill. That's you know, a, that guy. Stephen King's son, right? Yeah, Stephen King's son. One of his favorite movies is Jaws. And he made the hypothesis that he thought he maybe saw this mystery woman as an extra in Jaws. No, what? Yes. So this is his theory. At 54 minutes and two seconds, there's a shot of a woman looking behind her who matches the description of the woman who was found on the beaches. Now, this movie was shot about 100 miles away from where her body was found, and it was filmed just before she would have been murdered. So in, in what scene? Do you, do you know what scene it is? Is it just like a beach scene? Think about an hour in. What would that be? Maybe like when they're showing like the whole town coming to the 4th of July. Because it's like in a in a big group scene. Yeah. So you would, we'd have to look at it specifically to know for sure. She's wearing a blue bandana and she's wearing jeans. Jeans were also found at the scene. Like her jeans were folded up. It was very creepy. So nothing has come from this yet, but it's still a pretty interesting hypothesis, especially considering that Stephen King's son is involved. But he's taken this information to the FBI. I mean, they, they took it and said any theory that they get that might be credible, they'll they'll go with. The last articles I saw about it for were from 2018. So I'm not sure if they've been able to identify the woman who who played the extra or if anyone else who was an extra could identify who the woman was and even rule her out. But I just thought that that was crazy. It reminded me of the short film Long Shot. Did you ever watch that on Netflix? No. Uh, it's a short film? It's the story about a guy named Juan Catalan who was a murder suspect. And he ended up being acquitted because he was in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Does that sound familiar? No, I've not ever heard so, of this. So, so they were filming an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm at a baseball game that he claimed he was at the night of the murder of this girl and nobody else could confirm it. And so he was arrested and tried and it wasn't until later that they was combed through the shots of Curb Your Enthusiasm that he actually runs into Larry David and that was able to exonerate him. And he's actually given like a big lump sum oh, wow. for being wrongly tried. Have not heard of that? Yeah, I should check it out. It's on, it should still be on Netflix. It's called Long Shot. So this woman, though, they don't know who she is. No, she's still a Jane Doe. That's fascinating. I'll, have to, um, I'll read about that Joe Hill article. Probably Robert Shaw. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not accusing him of murder. <laughs> he likes to go out drinking. You, know? you never know what happened. You're right. You're right. All right. So let's get on to our true stories. I know I did two because they were both so interesting when I started looking into them. So do you want to do shark attacks or... The USS Indianapolis first. I get to pick? Okay, yeah. so what happens first chronologically? Let me guess. Let me guess. Okay, this is going to be the shark attack because you already said it was 1916. Yeah. So. so this is what they reference in the movie. Richard Dreyfuss's character spouts this off to the mayor as, a, as an example. Up until these shark attacks, marine biologists thought that sharks really wouldn't hurt people. They thought they were just kind of like big, dumb fish. There was even some crazy millionaire named Herman Ulrich 
who liked to jump in shark infested waters and like bet people that the sharks wouldn't eat him. I guess that's what you did back. <laughs> they were so bored. Yeah. Yeah. In the late 1800s, 1900s. What else are you going to do? Take bets. So let's go back to 1916. So this is, I mean, this is like Downton Abbey time. This is so long ago. <laughs> this is. It's almost Titanic time. It is. Or one time. Yes. And so this is the summer of 1916, which was very, very hot this summer. Just like five years before, I think in 1911, there was a huge heat wave that killed like 300 people. This it's obviously back before air conditioning or even like fans or things. So a lot of people are headed to the beaches. It also made the oceans very warm, which is one of the theories about why the sharks might have been coming closer to the shore. So this is on the shores of New Jersey. I imagine if you're a rich white person out there, you have your valet bring out all your shit to the beach and and you sit there with your swimsuit costume (laughs) on. Swimsuit costume. Those gigantic (laughs) hats. Yeah. And so this is July 1st, 1916. It's sunset on the New Jersey beach and 25-year-old Charles Van Sant is swimming with his golden retriever. He was celebrating the 4th of July with his family He was engaged to be married. He was young. He was strong. He was out um, about 100 meters, and he was calling his dog, trying to get him to come and swim with him. But people noticed a dark shape in the water, and they tried to warn him, but he was not paying attention. And then before you know it, they hear him start screaming. So the shark bites his legs, and people run out there to bring him out, but the shark won't let go. The shark doesn't let go of him until they actually get him up onto the sand. And by that time, they can see that one of his legs is gone and the other one's barely hanging on. His friend tried to make a tourniquet. They ran him to the hotel, but he died soon after. Yes. And so you think that this would be front page news. Shark eats a guy. But his death was only on page 18 of the New York Times because at this time, polio was still a big deal. World War I all his article said was dies after attack by fish. That was his headline. By fish. <laughs> by fish. Yeah. yeah. Just a fish. Aren't, aren't sharks mammals? Do we? Am I? Sharks are not mammals. Whales no. are mammals. They are fish. Whales okay. are mammals. Yes. Do you know the difference between a shark and a whale? You're not, you can't direct this movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny too on Inside Jaws. Like he reenacts that conversation. Like they're at a diner and the director's like giving his pitch and he's like, yeah. So the whale and the guy's like, well, the shark, yeah, sure, but go ahead. And the guy's like, okay. So then the whale is like, it's a fucking shark. <laughs> and then they, they fire him. But so this, just like in the movie, this is around the 4th of July weekend. And they didn't want to put a damper on the weekend. So all the hotels kind of kept it quiet. They wanted to keep the news quiet about this. They put some netting up out there to keep people from going to that particular spot. But there was no way they could have known that the second attack was going to take place 45 miles north of the first attack. So Charles Bruder was a very strong swimmer. He was a bellhop at the local hotel on the shore, and he went for a swim. Witnesses heard him scream, and they saw him be thrown up in the air, like as the shark was biting its legs, which I kind of imagine is like that opening scene of Jaws, where the girl is kind of being pushed around the water. I was imagining the Alex Kittner scene. Oh, yes, yes. That's because they saw that from the shore yeah. and people were, huh? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> and even like witnesses from the shore could see the shark darted away from him and then like came right back and bit him again. Lifeguards rode out. He was screaming as legs had been bit off. And so they reached down to 
pull him out and he's super light because both of his legs were gone and they pull him in and he died like soon after from blood loss which i just can't imagine seeing this actually happen the experts were still saying they didn't think this was a shark attack they said everything from a sea turtle (laughs) sea turtles could be mean they said an orca which we talked about before orcas are huge like they're like 30 to 33 feet that wouldn't get in and out of the ocean without being seen. They even, some people thought it might be German U-boats since we were on the cusp of World War I or in World War I. Um, so there was a guy named Dr. William Schoffler who is kind of reminds me of the Richard Dreyfuss character, Hooper. Uh, there's a quote from him that says, there is not the slightest doubt that a man-eating shark inflicted the injuries. That's no boat accident. <laughs> That's no boat accident. Look at this. Look at that billboard. <laughs> All right, so now we're on to July 12th in the Matawan Creek, which is off the ocean, but it's 11 miles inland. James Cottle was in his fishing boat, and he saw a huge dark figure swim under the bridge. And he ran to tell the town, but no one believed him, just like Crazy Ralph. He, went, he ran in there and said, it's camp blood, and no one listened to him. He rode around and rode away on his bicycle. It could be like the girl on the beach and Jaws with a nice little bandana that's like, shark. Shark, you know, when it swims under the lagoon and she's like barely whispering. Right. (laughs) So I can't stress this enough, Chris. This is in a stream. It's a big stream, but it's not the ocean. Okay. There's no shore. It's fresh water. Okay. This is insane. And so it has, it could be possible that a shark could get lost and accidentally go down into the, these stream areas, but it's never happened before. Okay. 11-year-old Lester Stilwell was swimming with his friends when the water around them turned red. The boys ran out of the creek. They were naked. They'd been skinny dipping, I guess. That's the thing that kids did. They were covered in mud, like screaming, running down the streets, saying that he got eaten by a shark. But when everybody got there, they didn't believe the kids. They thought that Lester just drowned. Um, So 24-year-old Watson Fisher swam out trying to find Lester as he was getting out of the creek, the shark grabbed him, Chris. Oh, my God. And bit 10 pounds out of his legs. A fisherman was able to get him out and go to the hospital, but he also later died. How has this not been a movie? It's Jaws. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, specifically, like this, this in, in and of itself is a pretty compelling mystery. Yeah, I still think it's really interesting that it's in 1916. That time period, I think, would be interesting. You could even tie things into World War One. would be yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I'll start writing it. Okay, get on that. So 30 minutes after Fisher's attack, Joseph Dunn was getting out at the dock down the stream and felt something pulling on his leg. His friends pulled him up and the shark let go of his leg and luckily he survived. So still people were not sure exactly what happened even to Lester until they found his head on the creek on the shore. Then people knew there was a shark and the shark hysteria started. Even the president... Woodrow Wilson, remember him? He actually gave federal aid to, quote, drive away the ferocious man-eating sharks, which have been making prey of bathers. So just like in the movie Jaws, everyone out tr- went out trying to catch this shark. There was rewards. There was a $100 reward posted by one town. The town meeting, the mayor said he wanted people to go out there and get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. They were throwing dynamite into the ocean. They used harpoons, axes, guns. Yes, they really went out there. And just like in the movie. Kind of save those bathers. 
Yes. <laughs> so four days later, they did catch a great white shark. He was a 350-pound, seven-and-a-half-foot shark. They cut him open and found a human shin and a rib mm. bone. So they were pretty sure that this was the same shark who caused all the attacks. They wanted to believe that anyway. But nowadays, when scientists look back, they think, well, it could have been a great white, or they were thinking more likely it might have been a bull shark. It could have gotten hurt or disorientated, especially when it got into the stream. And so then it could have just been eating anything that was around. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it could have been a coincidence that it was two different sharks, or it could have been the same shark that was just a little fucked up, I guess. Serial killer shark, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. So in 2019, unprovoked shark attacks, which I thought it was pretty funny that it was unprovoked because they had to look at each shark attack and be like, well, what'd you do? Oh, I poked it. Okay, well, that doesn't count. We're not going to count your shark attack. <laughs> Threw a harpoon at it. Right. In 2019, unprovoked shark attacks were down, but in 2020, globally, fatal shark attacks have increased three times what they have. So on average, four people die from sharks every year, but in 2019... It was only two, so it was really pretty low. Sharks kill on average two people every year. People kill, this is get, this is staggering, 100 million sharks every year. They deserve their revenge. <laughs> so the odds of being killed by a shark are in the United States are 1 in 3,748,067. You're more likely to drown. That makes you feel better. Also, you're more likely to die from falling into a hole in the sand. I don't know why that's a statistic, but they said from 1990 to 2006, 16 people in the United States died falling into a hole. In the sand? And then in that time period, 11 people were killed by oh. shark attacks. I mean, that makes me feel oddly better because I really don't want to get eaten by a shark. <laughs> but uh, in this article that came out just a couple days ago, it said that shark attacks have increased, especially in Australia. Last year, there was no shark attacks in Australia. This year, eight people have been killed by shark well, attacks. Well, that's just 2020. <laughs> That's yeah. true. You're so, right. Of course there are shark <laughs> <That's> never... <laughs> yeah. But that is interesting. Like, I wonder if because of COVID, like, are more people going to the beach? This an outdoor thing you can do. Maybe people are learning to surf because they have time off. Is it just a coincidence? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'd, be, I'd wonder what effect uh, global warming may have on Because you're talking earlier about how... Yeah, the, yeah. I, I assume you meant the warm waters were making the sharks swim to the beach. That's true. There do seem to be a good amount of shark attacks. There was the one surfer, Bethany Hamilton, who had her the arm... surfer. The yeah. soul surfers had her, had her arm bitten off when she was 13. She went on to still be a wonderful surfer. She was on The Amazing Race. She was a contestant, and she was amazing. She was wonderful. She had to do a one task where she had to surf, and her and her boyfriend killed it. Do you remember that girl, the little girl who got eaten by the alligator at Disney World? Yeah, I do remember that. Jeez. I thought it was a little boy. Oh, little kid. Way, yeah. Little child, yeah. No, that was terrible, yeah. I can't even imagine. I wonder, I wonder, I mean, I guess in comparison to alligators, most certainly probably get more people every year than sharks, right? I would I mean, think so, because alligators are waiting there at the shore anyway, you know? And they're yeah. in so much fresh water. Well, that'll be for our crawl episode. Yes. All right, so next deep dive I did was into the USS Indianapolis. And so we know that Quint tells his story, which is still one of the best scenes of any movie ever. And we knew the US Indianapolis was real. We knew this happened, but how much of it was actually real? And it is pretty spot on. 
Yes, which I thought was very fascinating, but also terrifying. And so the USS Indianapolis was a huge battleship that was used during World War II by the Navy, obviously, which uh, my grandfather was in the Navy. He flew blimps. And people Hmm. say, isn't that the Air Force? And I say, no, blimps were part (laughs) of the Navy. And my granddad was in, flew weather planes. I'm not sure what Hmm. that would be. Maybe they were friends. (laughs) Best friends. (laughs) So the USS Indianapolis sailed from Mare Island in California near San Francisco on June 16th, 1945, which is also where my grandfather was stationed. He was in San Francisco. And in March of 1945, a Japanese kamikaze plane had hit the Indianapolis, killing nine men. And so it was in need of repairs. So it had been docked in California. So the crew thought that they would be able to get to get to sit out the rest of the war so there was a crew of 1197 they became very close especially being dry docked because the war was almost over you know but then the manhattan project came into effect to build the atomic bomb and there was a super secret mission for the indianapolis and they were given the uranium core to deliver to tinian island which was the destination as the manhattan project called it and so Captain Charles McVeigh III was told, but it was kept top secret and guarded on the ship. And there, I watched a documentary on the History Channel, I think, and it had survivors. They were very funny because they were talking about how they were all like young teenagers, you know? They were late teens, early 20s. They were having a good time. They made lots of jokes what they thought was in the crate. They made jokes about how they thought it was scented toilet paper for General MacArthur or certain things for General MacArthur that they said, you know, things that boys think of. So just imagine, like, you know, what they were joking about. I guess I didn't realize from Quint's story that they didn't know they were transporting the... They didn't know at the time. Only um, the captain knew. And this will have been the very first atomic bomb, not the second one. Yes. And so they were taken to an island, and from that island would be where the plane took off to drop it, do you think? Yes, I think so. The Enola Gate? It was in the Philippine Ocean. And so it was like the uranium core and like the trigger and these certain parts that were needed for it. I mean, it seems like a Marvel mm. movie or something, you know. Yeah, they're I was moving. thinking about the Tesseract. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think that the, the crew was just kind of thinking, we're going to go and deliver this thing and then we're going to come home. So on July 26, they reached uh, Tinian Island in the South Pacific Ocean. Then they stopped at Guam. And then they got ready to head back on July 30th. The war had died down and was essentially over. But there was the commander of a Japanese sub, I-58, a commander Hashimoto. And he saw the ship and started tracking it. Captain McVeigh had asked for destroyer ships because these big battleships, they don't have sonar. They don't have, you know, depth uh, perception tools or anything so these destroyers will flank the ship and kind of keep guard but the, he was told no we, we don't have that and you don't need it anyway you'll be fine no one's seen any japanese subs around which was not true about four days earlier another ship had been taken down by these japanese subs there were like four main japanese subs that were super deadly so this was late at night most of the crew was sleeping and Hashimoto released the first torpedo. It hit starboard and killed dozens on impact. The second hit the fuel and ignited. 
and it, I mean, everything exploded and caught on fire. Fuel spread everywhere. Like it, it was so far that the survivors in the ocean couldn't even get away from it. And it was thick and it would get in your mouth and then, then you swallow it and it would make you throw up. And it's burning, getting in your eyes. The ship went under in 12 minutes, 280 miles from any land. 300 men went down with the ship. 880 survived the sinking and only 317 would be rescued. Now, some numbers say 316. There seems to be a discrepancy on that. I guess one person wasn't counted, but they were actually alive. I'll, I mean, this is so devastating. This is so many men lost and so many families that had to be told. Okay, but before we get to all that, so some people were able to get in lifeboats. The captain was in a lifeboat. Others just had life jackets and a lot had none. The men are hurt. They're burned. Some of them are holding up other people. Some of them are drowning. So there's a couple of quotes from some survivors. So Paul McGinnis, single men, third class. While I was completely coherent, this was my thought. Keep struggling and stay alive. It was very miserable because the sun burning the skin, one could not escape it. It was like having your head in a hole in the middle of a mirror with all this sunlight being reflected and burning your face. So hot, it was miserable, like hell. You couldn't wait for the sun to go down. When the sun went down, it was relief. Then it would get cold and you would start to shiver and you couldn't wait for the sun to come back up. Most of these men assumed that help was on the way, but they, they didn't realize is that help wouldn't come for four and a half days. There was a lot of confusion over, like I think in the movie they say it's because it was a top secret mission, so no one released a signal, which was kind of true. It was top secret, so it wasn't really on a lot of people's radar, but people were told that the ship was coming into harbor. They were supposed to be going to an island in the Philippines and doing more training and possibly going in on the ground, but they didn't know when they were coming, so no one knew they were missing. There was also a transmission that was intercepted about a Japanese sub hitting a ship, but they thought it was a hoax, so they didn't investigate. So in the meantime, in this four and a half days, these men are floating in the water. They started to drink the salt water, and the salt water, I guess, makes you want to drink more salt water, and then you start to have hallucinations, which is extremely disturbing. They would start fighting other people, thinking that they were Japanese soldiers. So I guess you can have hallucinations from dehydration? Would that be what it is? I think so. I guess like the salt water dehydrates you even more. Yeah. Um, So they started fighting each other. Some of these fights resulted in them killing themselves or killing others. There was one survivor that they interviewed named Tony King, who said that they were having hallucinations of women carrying buttermilk and cold drinks, which also reminds me of when we talked about that book I love, Shadow Divers, which is about when you get the bends when you go down too low or you come up too fast and you start to hallucinate, which is just terrifying. I guess there was also the really bad heat in the sun that could have had something to do with it too. Mm -hmm. And they haven't had a lot of food. They had to ration what they had and they had like some spam and some crackers. And luckily the captain was still in charge. And so he was trying to control what was happening. He kept talking to everybody and, you know, getting them to talk about like their families at home, their kids, their babies. So that way they kept their spirits up. They also had just like a little bit of drinking water and they had to ration that out. And there was one older man on the documentary who started crying 
because he was talking about how nobody took more than they were allotted you know like all these men were in this together they were friends and so then we get to the sharks so what sharks do is they come up and bump you first they kind of like run into you to kind of see what you are you know so the gut the men first started feeling these knocks or they or they thought that their someone was kicking them so here's another quote from Granville Kane, machinist mate, second class. So the people would hallucinate and they'd be like, the Indies down below, they're giving out fresh water and food and they'd swim down and a shark would get them. And he said, you could see the sharks eating your comrades. And so the sharks were also feasting on all the dead bodies come to feed and there'd be a feeding frenzy. And the men would have to like hold their hands over their ears because there was so much screaming. Well, what will they do? I mean, if anything, to prevent themselves from being eaten, just nothing. I mean, you just... well, it depends where you were. Like, if you were on the ship, I mean, if you were on the lifeboat, that it wasn't really an issue. The only issue you had with the sharks was that they would scare away the fish you were trying to catch. But if you're in the ocean, bleeding, <laughs> then there's not really much you can do. Like they tried to um, fight them off. You know, they tried to knock them on the heads, but they they were relentless. That's a, that was the thing that was really crazy about really scary about this is that they said that the the sharks would they would not let up they're just such assholes so like they would finally get like a raft made on styrofoam to have something to sit on and the sharks would come and just like destroy it and they would keep biting and attacking men actually saw others dragged away by sharks and their bodies would float back up up to 150 men died from shark bites which makes it the worst shark, shark attack in history. But all so far, all of that sounds pretty much like what Quint described. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about the doll's eyes, the black eyes, you know, rolling up, but I mean, that sounds like artistic license. Uh. Right. There was 317 people that survived. So maybe from all of those men's recollections, maybe that's where he got all the inspiration from. So maybe all of it came from different men. I don't know. Because it yeah. does sound like something that would be extremely traumatizing for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only thing that's different is that Quint's story sort of glosses over the first couple of days, it seems like, with you know all those other issues that were happening. And he goes, right. you know, as he would, he goes kind of straight to the sharks. Yes. Which is, yeah. um, so I didn't know all that other stuff happened just from hearing Quint's story. But I want to watch. Um, you said there's a History Channel thing on it. Is it something you can Yeah, there's something? a couple on YouTube. Most of the survivors have passed away the last officer passed away just this year he was 98 i think i read don that. howison was the last officer but there are still 10 other survivors left maybe crewmen so four and a half days later there was a second lieutenant junior grade wilbur chuck gwen who was flying over on a routine patrol or something yeah so he happens to see this an oil slick on the ocean and he thinks maybe it's a sub or something but he gets down closer and he sees all these men i mean what this is a, a huge shock to him so now they have they rounded up about 12 ships that were nearby and they come to come save who they can i mean really sad too like a lot of the men started swimming towards the boats and they got so tired that they drowned okay oh 317 men were saved so all the men are convalescing, you know, they're they're trying to get better. On August 6th, they're finally told that what they were carrying on the ship. I guess by that time, the 
bomb had already dropped, probably, right? Yeah. I, mean, I guess at that point, maybe you're just lucky to be alive. Can you imagine some of those men were in the water the whole time? Like their skin was almost like paper because they had just yeah. been soaking in the water for four and a half days. Do you think there's been a movie made about that? Like, did text you. There is a Nicolas Cage movie that came out in 2016 oh, okay. <laughs> called USS Indianapolis. I'm not sure if it's any good. <laughs> that could be about anything. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a Mandy sequel. Who knows? Right. <laughs> Mandy prequel. So I'm not sure if there's another one. Especially, I mean, I don't think there's one by a high-end director. I'm not sure. The Nicolas Cage movie is called USS Indianapolis Men of Courage. Uh-huh. It's definitely about the shark attacks. There's an image on IMDb of Nicolas Cage battling a shark. It got a 30 meta score review. It has Tom Sizemore, Thomas Jane. It's directed, directed by Mario Van Peebles. It can't be that bad. It looks like it was a made for video thing or something. I don't know. I'm sorry. I just saw the poster for the Nicolas Cage movie. I don't know if you've seen it, but <laughs> can't, you can't, I'll have to send you the link. Okay. It is just chef's kiss. I'm going to text it to you. All right. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. So there is a movie about the 1916 shark attacks that came out in 2004 called 12 Days of Terror. Um, that was like a Discovery Channel thing, I think. And then there was something called Blood in the Water that came out in 2009 that was on Shark Week. So I don't know if there's been anything that's... <laughs> Did you get it? Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I can't promise that I won't watch that, but <laughs> it doesn't seem like, I think the answer to our question is there been a film made about this movie, about this subject is still no. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what's really shocking about this whole story, besides everything else, was that the Secretary of the Navy court-martialed and charged Captain McVeigh with two charges, placing his ship at risk by not zigzagging, which is something that ships are supposed to do, continually moving in a zigzag pattern. But again, he was told that no ship, no submarines have been found in that area. So I guess he didn't feel like it was necessary. And also he was charged with failure to abandon ship in time. So the rest of the crew thought this was awful. They knew that Captain McVeigh was a good man and he did everything he could. I mean, ultimately it does come down to his responsibility being the captain, but him being court-martialed and charged is not common. This is not something that, that usually happens. They even flew uh, Hashimoto, who was the captain of the Japanese sub, over to testify that even if that USS Indianapolis had been zigzagging, he still could have sunk the ship. They'd been tracking it. I wonder if there was some pressure from the, you know, family members of the deceased or something. There was. There was. They wanted to see somebody pay. get in trouble for it. Yeah. So McVeigh was acquitted on failure to abandon ship, but was found guilty for placing his ship at risk. So he, later he was allowed to return to the Navy and he was actually promoted to rear admiral, which was something that he'd always wanted to become. But he never returned to sea. And... He committed suicide by gunshot on the front porch of his Connecticut home. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's it's very, very sad. Well, I mean, like, how long after the event was that? It was 1968. So hmm. he lived with it for, I mean, almost 20 years. I guess he lived with that guilt. And he, he still had nightmares about it, you know. He, I'm sure PTSD wasn't as 
treatable as a, or they didn't have the treatment that they needed back then. And it's still something right. that's so misunderstood. So I can't imagine the guilt of all that was too much on him. Also, amazingly, on August 19th, 2017, the wreckage of the Indianapolis was found by a group of researchers that was financed by Paul Allen, the co-finder of Microsoft. It was found in the Philippine Sea at 18,000 feet just think is fascinating you know i love like that shadow divers book again i'm just going to mention that again shipwrecks are fascinating and the fact that they were able to find this ship is amazing especially for a lot of the 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 survivors that were still alive and for the family members when they find a ship like that they can't just go in and start like taking stuff it's considered a gravesite but like again in that shadow divers book you know, they talk about these shipwrecks that have never been found. And it's just insane that these giant ships can just disappear and never be found again. It's super creepy. Yeah. It'd be fascinating if you could somehow take like an aerial view and then like just remove the ocean and just see where all <gasps> these missing ships are. Oh my gosh. Like going back to, you know, pirate times or something. That sounds amazing. Those are, those are the first ships as we know pirates. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Um, but it could just be everywhere, you know, and you know, the ocean's so big. I know. This is a very basic thought. I'm sorry, but uh, that just gives, gives me the chills thinking about that. It made me very excited. That is those two stories that they talk about in Jaws and some other fun facts thrown in there. But I just love these two stories and I want to l- learn more about them. Yeah, those are good ones. Uh, I mean, it's got sharks. It's got shipwrecks. It's got... That's about it. That's probably really. <laughs> oh, the, the Tommy Bomb. Yeah, it's got um, World War Two. It's got World War One. Uh, court marshaling, suicide, uh, male bonding, <laughs> all kinds of things. It's amazing. I did wonder, uh, you know, in, if you don't know the answer, you can just cut this out. But there's that line early on where uh, Roy Scheider's reading his little book, his coffee tail book of short, right. shark deaths, whatever. Right. He's like, did you know that sharks can live two, three hundred years? Like, no one knows this. Is that true? Can sharks live two or three hundred years? I don't think something? so. I think uh, one of the oldest sharks was fifty years old. Oh, well, that's disappointing. Sorry. Okay, but turtles can out. live that long. Does that make you feel yeah, better? Yeah. So why not? Yeah, a little bit. So why not sharks? I don't know. I mean, well, that just always stuck with me. So it seems somewhat irresponsible to leave that in a movie <laughs> and just let me guess if that's real or not. <laughs> How old can sharks be? Hold on, twenty or thirty years. Sorry. Boo. <laughs> Well, here's something that says a Greenland shark has lived at least 272 years. Yeah, there you go. Oh, so these Greenland sharks can live forever. I don't, not forever, uh, but. Vampires. <laughs> but on average, it looks like they went, they lived 20 to 30 years. Unless you're the whale shark that was in the Georgia Aquarium that died. They keep losing their animals. I don't know why they keep putting them in those small areas, but hmm. it's another story. Yeah. So um, next week, I think part two of our Spielberg trilogy of his uh, thrillers, horror movies. I know. But the more you talk about this, it's like the more it's like I want to do Minority Report. I want to do Munich. It's <laughs> well, we can't go crazy. I know. I've, I've already been thinking about doing a Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it. Yeah. Anything else we well, want to talk about? No, I don't think so. But thanks for presenting those stories. And um, you did a good job as usual. I don't feel guilty for listening to them. Like it sometimes do. All right. Well, if you like those stories, you know, let us know if you have any additional information you wanted to add or if I got anything wrong. I mean, I, I got a, had the information from a lot of different places and I'll put them all in the show notes and I'm definitely going to read more books about it. 
talk to us on all of our social media stuff and rate and review and tell a friend and all that fun stuff. All right. Well, thanks. And uh, good night. Bye. I've got to learn how to gracefully end this thing.